Welcome, comrades, to the Exchanger Podcast. After many weeks, here we are. <laughs> back again. Yeah, so welcome back. Uh, I guess presumably this would be the second episode. So anyone listening has come back from the first episode, which is probably quite remarkable. So Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we should really go back and listen to that. We should. I actually tried to look, listen to my half. So I think you still have your half sitting on a hard drive somewhere, I'm guessing. Oh, wow. I should really get that to you then. <laughs> so my name is Simon. My comrade here is Phil. Hi. And the rules of the game are pretty simple. We try and tag up more or less on a weekly basis and we trade albums back and forth. So one of us will give an album suggestion to the other. They commit to listen to it three times. They can get a, a good opinion of it. And then we discuss and turn the tables on each other. So last time, Phil left me with the assignment. And the assignment was um, Typhoon White Lighter. Before I start talking about it, when did you first listen to this, Phil? Did you listen to it as it came out? Uh, yes, I think I'm trying to remember the timeline of when I first heard it. It was probably... Uh, I probably first heard Typhoon from one of their previous records. I'm going to double check that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, I think I first heard them in 2012. So I was really starting to listen to them around the time that White Lighter came out. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it was, it was actually pretty opportune timing because, uh, it was actually, uh, my girlfriend April introduced them to me on a mixtape that she had given me. And I thought, wow, this is really good. Uh, and <laughs> I, I think through spot at the magic of Spotify or something, I saw that they had just released the new album and I, I pretty, it became part of my heavy rotation at the time. Okay. It didn't seem like they had a huge back catalog. Like maybe they had one release before that. Is that fair? I think it, it looks like two. Two. Okay. Yeah, they they definitely don't have a whole lot. And they it looks like they're due to release their next studio album relatively soon. I know their their lead singer uh Kyle Morton just released a solo album uh, this year. Mhm. Mm mhm. Mm yeah, they're a Portland band, so I mean, I've been doing some traveling up there this year. I was hoping maybe I could catch him. I saw he was doing a show in August, but I don't think I'll be up there then. Oh, that's so a shame. That would be interesting. But, I mean, so I can understand why April would have put it on a mixtape for you, knowing uh, knowing you as I do. 
an album with this level of existential angst is like <laughs> it's like shoot, shooting fish in a barrel for, <laughs> for it really is for a film recommendation. <laughs> it's um, it, you know, I really liked it. I think I, I played it maybe the evening that you recommended it. I stuck it on the the radio downstairs and. Karen immediately said it was listenable, so you have that going for you. <laughs> That's a strong endorsement. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and it's, um, you know, the first thing that I got immediately was kind of a, a Frightened Rabbit vibe, if that makes sense to you. I mean, I know they kind of have a much bigger orchestration, but maybe maybe it was the lyrical content or his voice. It kind of reminded me of Frightened Rabbit a little bit. Yeah, I I could definitely see that, and it's funny you mentioned that because I just listened to uh, one of Frightened Rabbit's albums again for the first time in a couple of years uh, this weekend. As a matter of fact, mm-hmm. huh. uh, I guess I decided to celebrate the Fourth of July with some Scottish. <laughs> but uh, I I can definitely see that because uh, one of the things that you know you can always pick certain certain elements that you want to hone in on is the descriptor for a band. And there's a lot to unpack from Typhoon and, yeah. and I think also from Frightened Rabbit. But one of the things that, that comes across to me is a sort of breathlessness in expressing something emotionally. Like they're, they're almost trying to catch themselves because they're stumbling forward with great speed through the song with, I guess, urgency. Right. There's this strong yeah. urgency there. Like they have something that they have to say right now. And I think that's mm-hmm. one of the things that I really get with, with Frightened Rabbit, where that emotion in the song feels very palpable and real. And I think Typhoon has a lot of that, too, which is part of what I, I really appreciate with it. Was I you in front of me? Yeah, definitely. That's a that's a great way of put, putting it. It's that yeah, that level of intensity that he brings to it, and I think you mentioned that last time. Maybe that he's he's really got something he's trying to communicate, and feels like he has a limited time to do it in. Which I mean makes sense, I guess, given his background and I guess the, his overall outlook, or at least that I can glean from what he has on this album. Yeah, so, it you know it, it almost. You could almost feel like there, if you were to tell me that what he was saying, he was saying for the first time, like he just spontaneously composed that and was saying it in the moment, it comes Mm -hmm. across as that earnest, right? You know, usually it's like you go see a band that's been on tour for a long time and they're playing a song that they've played thousands of times. They have to really try hard to make it seem like they've got that, that, I guess, uh, emotional kick yeah they got the same passion for it that they had when they first wrote it or yeah yeah so in terms of songs you know if i think about this this album in terms of songs it's there's maybe a couple that jump out at me but to me and i guess maybe because it's the theme that runs through the album. You can't really call it a concept album per se, but 
it's it all seems like part of one big conversation, right? So there's a couple of songs in the beginning that, that stick out, like maybe Young Fathers um, or Artificial Light. Which seem like they could be singles, maybe in and of, of themselves. The rest of the album, to me, though, seems more of, of a piece. So, I mean, maybe something... Uh, I'm trying to think of a good comparison. But maybe almost something like a musical. And I don't know if that's also because of the way he has big big band arrangements and complicated arrangements. But he doesn't tend to rely on, you know, uh, kind of basic original, basic traditional, I should say, song structures like verse, chorus, verse kind of thing. In some ways, it's more like um, poetry set to music, or if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the given how strong the theme is, it definitely resonates throughout. And it's got that, I, I guess part of the reason why I wanted to to recommend this one is because it was one of the albums that jumped out at me as a complete album. Yeah. You know, there, there's so many, and now especially with the advent of how we consume music, a lot of them are just collections of singles. And, mm-hmm, and you know, mm-hmm. some some of these bands have sort of bemoaned the the loss of the complete album and i think white lighter is that uh, like you said it, and it's not it's not gimmicky in the form of a concept album like you said but i guess the theme and the feeling and there's cohesion and if you listen to it from beginning to end it mm-hmm. gives you a complete experience that maybe you wouldn't get just by listening to all the songs separately or in disjointed order uh right yeah, that's for sure. And in fact, you know, listening to it, I've listened to it, you know, like we alluded to, there's probably been more than a week since we recorded the last one. So I've listened to it a good deal more than three times, uh, probably, I don't know, 10 times, maybe a dozen, I don't know, roughly. But, you know, like you say, you put it on, it's a whole experience. I don't really tend to even necessarily hear the hear the beginning and the ends of the songs. They all seem to kind of float flow together to me which is which is good because like you say you're you're absorbing the whole thing in one in one go you're not trying to pick out singles or yeah and and you know it's uh it's interesting too because i'm looking i'm looking at the list of tracks from beginning to end and if you know not to sort of superimpose the literary on it mm-hmm. but it's, it's interesting if you look at it from the terms of like a three-act structure right you know, you start with artificial light and young fathers that I, mm-hmm. I really do think are the, you know, they're they're the more singles yeah. of the of the album. I think young fathers was uh, one of NPR's picks for song of the year for that year. You I know, that. Th- they're sort of self contained, but they they kind of have that that overarching exploration of what's going on, like what's the world that they're in. Mm-hmm. like you would have in a in a three act structure in that first act and then you get to the midpoint and you're getting to getting close to like the lake which is really you know that's <laughs> right that's that midpoint <laughs> low point you know 
this is this is when things get real, right? These right. are these are the things that are standing <laughs> in our way. Uh, and you know, not to not to say that there's a happy ending, because I don't think that's that's what he's about at this point. But right, you know, it's it's interesting to see that trajectory over the course of the album. It is so. You know, I was wondering as I listened to it because I think you asked me, you know, try and pick out what you think was your favorite song. And like I said, the first couple kind of jumped out as singles. I would imagine Young Fathers was resonant for you, but that may be me just reading into too much. But I was born in September, and like everything else I can remember, I replaced it with scenes from the film that I will never make. And I blinked, it was over. I was thinking my life would get slower. That I would sort this shit out when I'm sober. No, definitely. Uh, that That is, I debate whether or not The Lake or Young Fathers is my favorite mm-hmm. song. Um, you know, I think... You know, you know, go ahead and make your point, but then I'll, I've got something else I want to say about that. Well, you know, it's it's interesting because uh, you can you can sort of have that objective appreciation for a story that makes you empathize with someone else's experience that you cannot relate to. And I have that with, mm-hmm. with the lake. You know, there's pieces yeah. that you can pick out of it, like that sense of alienation from family and choosing between family and, and maybe something else and then regretting it later. Uh, and, and then Young Fathers obviously speaks to me much more directly. Right. You know, it's funny you mentioned those two, I thought, because I think there's a, a duality between the two of them. Because one of the things he says in Young Fathers is there's this sense that, um, what does he say? You, you commit a soul without its consent. So, you know, some thoughtless act between two people engenders this other life into being, right? Um, without its consent and, you know, maybe without even any planning or thought on the part of the, the parents. And then the lake is kind of the negative side of that, right? You have that bug, the bug bite, which is probably equally as thoughtless and and random, uh, which has the opposite effect, right? It is potentially going to snuff out a life. Wandered down into a quiet place with the grass grew tall as it met the lake. There was a different bug, must have bit my leg, though I never saw him. Yeah, and you know he makes that point like it literally turns his body against him or it sells against mm-hmm. him, and and that sense of feeling like, you know, he's uh, that he's a prisoner in his own body, and again, it's that sense of loss of will. You know that that, that is like you said, it's very existential, right? That you know I, I didn't choose this, and I am yet again imprisoned, uh, by by something ex- external, and and potentially. Like you said, very very banal something. Yeah. Um, and and you know, it, I, you reminded me of. Uh, have you seen Stranger Than Fiction? No, but if we, people keep telling me to watch it, <laughs> if we if we ever get to the point where we exchange movies, that's going to be one of the ones I recommend to you. Um, okay. It's it's one of my favorite movies, and there's a there's a scene in it. Uh, you're familiar with the premise, I think. 
right? That, mm-hmm. you know, there's a scene where Will Ferrell's character is trying to figure out, you know, why, why is he hearing this narrator? And so he goes to a professor in literature and he basically tells him, that's Dustin Hoffman's character, he's saying to him, the first thing we need to do is figure out what type of story you're in. And he says, there's only two types of stories, really. There's comedies and there's tragedies. And in comedies, we explore the fact uh, that life goes on. Life uh, continues. There's, you know, you fall in love, then you have children, and the cycle continues. Like, the the ongoing march of progress, I guess, or however he puts it. He puts it much more artfully <laughs> than that. And he says, in tragedy, it's that death is inevitable, you know. Uh, so it's one or the other. And I think it's interesting because, you know, you kind of have a little bit of that. When you talk about that duality, it's like, what what story are you going to tell? And and I think what Morton and the band really are doing is, uh, whether or not they realize it or not, they're laying the groundwork for both stories and they don't know how it ends yeah. yet. Yeah, I know that. I definitely agree with that. Yeah. And there's also the sense, I mean, he has, so there's a certain, uh, I guess, innocence and romance. So an artificial light, right? There's this, you know, the symbol of the light that the people are trying to capture and hold on to, which is, you know, has a certain innocence to it. And then you have a song like Prosthetic Love. Or, well, I mean... A lot of them really undercut that, the, uh, the Morton's Fork where he talks about, you know, the sacrifice of the person who jumps in and, and saves, saves his loved ones. Prosthetic love, which is, I think, even undercuts it more. But it's he's kind of talking about the sense that um, that that sense of wonder and, and discovery is a fiction, right? He, so much of what what he believed as a child was what he saw on TV, and so you know, if you watch a love story or a romance on TV, set your expectations for what's going to come in the future, and of course that you know didn't pan out for him yeah it's a complicated album and i i do think it kind of sets these things up and then undercuts them in subsequent songs but so one of the things i guess i didn't didn't like about the album there's a couple of there's a couple of times where i feel it it's a little too uh What's the word I'm looking for? Deliberately quirky, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's a female singer who does this this thing that's I associate it with, you know, bands of this era, at least you know the 2010s, maybe where she does this kind of quirky, quirky singing voice. 
it's kind of childlike and I guess it's supposed to be, it kind of reminds me of a, a Spike Jones movie gone bad maybe, but yeah. Um, yeah. I can't remember where I was going with that, but that's so, so obviously people have a lot of criticism about the millennial generation and their um, self-centeredness, I guess, or their, you know, people call them special snowflakes. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's a little bit of this going on here, but again, it's kind of undercut. In the one, on the one hand, he says, you know, life is random and this, this bug bite can cut out everything from under you and, and the things that we've been led to believe are, you know, hollow and transitory. On the other hand, he spends a whole album kind of railing against, in some senses, railing against the, the injustice of all that, right? There's a certain sense of like, how could this happen to me? Does that make sense to you? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question because, you know, there's. I guess it depends on how much you consider that someone's externalizing their experience right. as a whole, to make to make that sort of deontological argument of. I have a problem with the fact that this happens, and I know it happens because it happened to me. Right, and I, I'm capable to call comment on that and i think there's a big difference to challenge the nature of things and call them unfair than to to sort of whine and say what was <laughs> right <it?"> you know? <laughs> and, and i think about you know it's hard it's hard to find anyone less millennial than someone like jose samaragu you know the guy uh, nobel prize in literature winning author he died relatively recently in his 80s uh and he didn't start writing until his 60s Mm -hmm. and and there was an interview with him where the interviewer asked him why didn't you write sooner and he said because i didn't have anything to say (laughs) right and you know his his argument (laughs) that's that's a great point yeah yeah you know there's a lot of people you know, we saw we saw that George Saunders talking about, mm-hmm. you know, that sense in which you can go out looking for theme, uh, sort of artificially mining for it, and then loading it up into a dump truck, and then backing it up onto your audience and just pouring <laughs> it out on them. Uh, but, but, you know, that may not be anything that you actually know or, or can comment on in any meaningful way. Right. I think we can give a certain amount of of deference to someone to to speak to their own experience without without necessarily holding it against them for you know some a lot of people's experience isn't going to be as deep as this but they can still comment on it in a way that you know that's part of the value of art i guess developing that empathy for an experience that's very alien to our own absolutely yeah no i mean the the thing it really makes me wonder though is given that admittedly I've only experienced this one album from them is, you know, to what degree can he carry this on and and talk about other things or, um, you know, and not, and certainly artists can plow, you know, one or two big themes for their entire career. But, um, and maybe I just need to go see what his solo album sounds like, but I'd be interested to see what other things, what he, what he has to say about other stuff, I guess. Yeah. And I guess that's uh, that's an interesting point, you know, as he grows as a person, 
and he experiences more, you know, what does what does he go to next, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I'm trying to think of other, you know, other artists that are sort of autobiographical in their music, where you get to sort of map the trajectory of their lives and how they develop as, as their lives change. And I'm, I'm having trouble. Everybody I can think of is a, a rapper. Which is true. I mean, they tend to, tend to seem autobiographical. Yeah. Right? It's, it's, it's just then you've just got to hope that like becoming famous doesn't kill their source of interesting things to write about other than being famous. Well, yeah, you know, it's, it's like, uh, like our friend Mike talking about, uh, standup comedians, how, after they reach a certain he he says basically you can track their acts by how you can sort of tell where in the life cycle of a comedian's fame they are based on the the material in their acts because it's so observational it's uh-huh. like once they're doing really well they're going to have a lot more bits about like airports and airlines and restaurants right. and hotels <laughs> because then they're experiencing that a lot more you know uh uh-huh. And then it's yeah. the wife and kids. And, it's like Aziz Ansari. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, he had a whole whole thing about partying with Kanye, right? You know, it's it's like that's not relatable. I mean, he still manages to make it funny, but it's interesting because you can tell, like, okay, this right. is where he's at in the in the life cycle of a comedian. You know, like <laughs> right. you stop talking about, oh, I'm <laughs> I'm texting the girl and the girl's not texting me back. Like, yeah, that's probably not happening to you as much anymore. I'm guessing. You know, <laughs> that's. It's like I can't believe I have to pay my manager and my agent ten percent. Like I can't, I can't, really, can't really to that. One thing uh, I did want to go back to is that that sort of point about the the ethereal uh, sort of uh, singing of the the other singer in the background. I do think that's that's sort of a, a mm-hmm. conceit of of indie music, uh, especially from this time period. You know, I, yeah. I think they add texture with that uh, sort of a, a way to cut maybe some of the the rawness and it's it definitely is something that you sort of can if if you don't like it i mean it's definitely going to be noticeable and i I think that's definitely a sign of they are a portland band and that's uh that's sort of uh you know i was thinking of who else is autobiographical and plumbing the depths of their feelings and i i came with uh bonnie bear right yeah it's like how how far is he going to be able to take that heartbreak how long is he gonna drag that one out because you know eventually i mean he he may already be married for all i know i I don't follow his personal life very much but you know he he's probably with someone else by now Mm -hmm. and if he's still singing about heartbreak you have to wonder does does the new person look at him and say like hey Come on now. Like, it's not all bad. You know, write a happy song now? Please. Come on, skinny love, just lay singing. To pour a little soap we will never eat. My, 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 my. It is, yeah. I mean, uh, as you say, it's something. Uh, I mean, I guess every musical generation has its little markers that kind of place it. I've, I've I've heard other bands. I can't think of a good example now either, but I've heard other bands that do something similar, and it just kind of yeah, grates on me a little bit. It's it, it's a uh, it's kind of a hard thing to do. You know, I think about like uh, 
Sufjan Stevens. You know, mm-hmm. he he has a voice that is just unreal, right? And he writes beautiful music and he sings beautifully, but there's something about how sweet his voice is. Yeah. That you I can't I can't listen to it for very long. Not because I don't love the music and it's not beautiful, but it, it's like eating very rich chocolate. Right. You know, eventually it just like <laughs> blows out your taste buds. Now I'm drunk and afraid Wishing the world would go away What's the point of singing songs If they'll never even hear you You know, uh, yeah, I, I think I think there's something to be said for that. And and I wonder I wonder if it's even still going to be around in a couple of years if that that kind of trend is is just disappearing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's right. I mean, you're right. It's a certain type of indie band that does it. I mean, for a while there was like also big kind of woho choruses that all kind of sounded the same as well. Oh yeah, they came you're, out of a lot of indie bands. Your Americana right. resurgence, yeah, right, yeah. That was uh one of the <laughs> one of the genres that popped up in Spotify for April was called stomp and holler, <laughs> which is which is pretty much that. I mean, it's like <laughs> the... I'm sure she appreciated that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was I was no one to put on some stomp and holler for. <laughs> no, that's good. I mean, that was a good good first pick. Excellent. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, definitely. I... I'm gonna have to make Karen listen to it a little bit more. She, I, she kind of heard it occasionally as I was listening to it, but yeah, I think she would get a kick out of it. As well. It's very epic music. It's good to listen to while you're you're doing something meaningful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it would they would be a good band to see live if they can pull off those, you know, those arrangements live. I've missed them uh, more than any other band. There, there's, uh, I think. It's either two or three times I've had tickets to see them and it has not happened. Yeah. So I've never seen them live. They uh, they were going to play uh, day three of the second weekend of ACL the year that it got rained out. So I missed yeah. them then. And then we got tickets to make up for it when they came back through Texas and they had to cancel due to his health. And I just don't think they've come back to Texas, which, you know, there's a lot of bands that don't come back to Texas. Yeah, they don't they're... come through. Yeah. Yeah. Or they stop at Dallas. Yeah, exactly. So I'm hopeful I'm hopeful I'll get a chance to see them at some point because uh I think April seen them and says that they live up to the to the recordings, so Well, I guess maybe if they're gonna tour on a new album. Yeah. I hope so. So I guess I get to turn the uh Indeed turn the tables back on you now for the next one. This is a hard task, harder than I thought it would be, because there are like about, you know, 300 albums I could probably, probably recommend. So, you know, I was thinking what we, about what we talked about the other day. Um, you know, we talked about the fact that we, we, we have so many albums in our listening repertoire that we don't have really any perspective on anymore, because we, I, I, we either listened to them for so long or so many times. So I think this is one of those albums. So you can be a litmus test, I guess. I, I think in theory, you should like it. Um, 
but maybe in <laughs> actuality, I don't know. It's like I said, I may have, I may have lost all, uh, all sense of reason. I mean, the, the main thing I think about is maybe that you would think it was dated, but, um, so the album is, uh, it's called Past, Present, and Future by Al Stewart. And if you know Al Stewart, you probably know him from Year of the Cat, which was a kind of a adult contemporary hit he had in the late 70s, I think. Um, which I guess he made his fortune on. And I think, unfortunately, after that, he his output kind of deteriorated. Um, <laughs> he, his boat came he, in. He's, and... That's right. <laughs> he, uh, which is not to say he didn't write some good songs. In fact, at the very end of his career, he had a couple of, of pretty good albums as well. Once he'd kind of like, I guess maybe come around to the fact that he was sort of a one-hit wonder and anything he did after that, he could kind of do what he liked because he had, you know, the money and resources to do it from his hit. But right. He, you know, he started out, he was... Um, he started out as a guy who formed a band when they saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan or whatever the case may be there. He started out as a beat group. And then he went down to London as a teenager and kind of got caught up in the the, the folk scene. And he was like every other folk singer of the time was kind of, you know, trying to copy Dylan and... Um, I think he kind of set himself apart there because he started writing some actually interesting, interesting songs in his own style. He, you know, obviously for a while he was just kind of doing the covers or whatever, but he kind of developed a literary style that was kind of uniquely English. Um, and all along the way, wanderers in overcoats with cars. On parade and steaming in the night, the listeners in the true blood guitar play weaves a willow strain. And so for a while he was kind of this this folky with an acoustic guitar. But then kind of in the early 70s, he started to branch out a bit from kind of the the solo artist. I mean, he was still billed as a solo artist, but he was looking, his arrangements and his scope and vision were getting a bit bigger. And he kind of made two or three, maybe four albums in the early 70s that I think are, I mean, they're they're all pretty great folk rock albums. Um, it was a hard choice for me between, so Past, Present, and Future is one of them. And... Um, Modern Times is the one that I think came immediately after it. Uh, and both of those two, I think, are the kind of the pinnacle of his his career and output, at least, at least in my opinion. And he has an obsession with time and history, as you can, if you kind of like scan through some of his album titles. Yeah, can, I see that. You can see that. Um, but Past, Present, and Future, I think, it's a good folk rock album and he has a lot of great um, people backing him up. So it, it's a good band. But that album I like just because, one, I've listened to it a lot. 
Uh, my dad bought it. He found it in a bargain bin somewhere um, on vinyl, like back in the early 80s, I guess. And uh, so it was kind of hanging around the record collection. And I just I listened to it so many times. And that's why I say I have probably no real sense of, <laughs> of how good it is anymore. But his lyrics are really interesting. He writes around historical themes and... On that album, especially the arrangements of the songs, it's like every song has, you know, strange and interesting instruments or a, a neat quirk to the arrangements. And uh, yeah, kind of want to see what your your opinion of that album is. Oh, I look forward to listening to it. Sounds very interesting. So it's a good album to listen to with uh, Wikipedia open because he like he does make a lot of historical references. So. <laughs> Yeah, I just uh, I pulled up the Wikipedia entry for the article, and it, the thing that jumped out at me was uh, a quote from him saying, "My first four albums have been for me an apprenticeship. The new album is my thesis." So he apparently agrees with you that this is this is one of his best works. He uh, mm-hmm. he also apparently uh, alludes to the Sirens of Titan. So that is on the uh, modern times. Yeah. He has a, yeah. Which is a good, I mean, it's a good song just because it's about a Vonnegut novel. Yeah. But it's not particularly deep. It's just kind of a a retelling of the novel, I guess. Yeah. Um, But yeah, you know, I was, I was listening to the album. I don't want to get too far into conversation, but I was listening to past, present, future, maybe a few weeks ago. And there's a song on there about uh, about Warren Harding, which I don't know. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> again, that's not a super deep song either, but it's um, it seemed timely again, which was. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Well, Al Stewart, he seems he seems like an you know I don't I've sadly never heard of him, so I'm looking forward to listening to this. I see he worked with the Alan Parsons. Not the Alan Parsons project, just Alan Parsons. Seems like he worked with yeah, he worked with a lot of interesting people. Like early on, I know um, Jimmy Page was a session guitarist on a couple of his earlier albums. So you know, you'll be listening to them and hear some like some proto Led Zeppelin stuff on on the guitar nice. solos or whatever, but. He had one album called Love Chronicles and, and the whole second side of the album was like a 20 minute song that recounted his history of his remo- uh, romantic conquests. <laughs> <laughs> again, it's like one of those songs where it's like, it's this is either brilliant or ridiculous and I'm not quite sure what. It's such a weird thing. It's so right. weird. You know, that, that reminds me, there was... And this may be an album that I that I share at uh, at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, have you ever listened to Sun Kill Moon? Uh, yeah, I'm, I think I have. So, uh, name some songs because they um, sound familiar. I'm having a hard time naming songs, but you would definitely know it if you heard it. Uh, the guy's name is Mark Kozalek. I think I'm saying that right. And he is one of those people who does autobiographical songs and it's kind of folksy uh-huh. and he's got that 
really beautiful voice, but he, uh, he's what I consider my emotional landmine in my discover playlist every week because, you know, Spotify's algorithm is good enough to know that I, I really like that music, but not good enough to know that I don't want to hear it. You know, so he, all of his songs are just, not all of them, a lot of them are really bleak and, and if it was just bleak for the sake of bleakness, it would be okay, but he's so poetic about them and you know that they're real. Uh So that makes it, that makes it so much worse, but he had, he had one that was, uh, that was about him doing a show and I want to say Italy and uh, or somewhere, and, and basically he talks about uh, meeting up with a fan afterwards and spending the night with her. And I thought, like, oh, finally, something upbeat in the, <laughs> in the repertoire for Mark. We yeah. can all enjoy that, <laughs> but he still manages to make it sad. It's like <laughs> it turns it into this uh, this exploration of how how sad this woman's life is. And I was like, oh, oh my God, why? She sent me a letter with a touching detail I used up my minutes calling hotels to find you that night To an old hill, I know it's pathetic She continued to write, but that was the greatest But <laughs> I thought, well this is uncharacteristic of him to, you know, talk about romantic conquest, but... <laughs> You know, I'm still going to find a way to make it sad. All right. Well, we've got a a plan for next week. Successful first first exchange. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so you are required to listen to it at least three times. I think I can do that. That may be, be, uh, you've got some some long drives ahead of you, so uh, just put it on. Should be doable. Cool. Okay. Well, that was episode number two in the bag. I can well recall the first time I ever put to sea was on the old Calcutta. Thanks for listening to the Exchanger podcast. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review wherever you downloaded the episode. You can find our social media links at our website, xchngr.org, and we're at Facebook at xchngr. Drop by, leave us a message, send us an email. Thank you. <laughs>